Hello and welcome back to Holding Space Podcast. In today's episode, in honor of Paternal Mental Health Day and Father's Day, we are talking all about dads. I sit down with my colleague, Dr. Danny Singley. Danny is a psychologist specializing in working with men, particularly men in early fatherhood, and we explore paternal, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Can men experience depression and anxiety after having a baby or during pregnancy? The answer is yes, and we explore what does this look like, what are the risk factors and protective factors, what can men do to get better and to find support, what can partners do to help. This is a really important episode and a really important topic that's very near and dear to my heart, so let's jump on in right now. You're listening to Holding Space Podcast with Dr. Cassidy Freitas, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Now, let's jump in. Hello and welcome back to Holding Space Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Cassidy, and I am sitting across from my good friend and colleague, Dr. Danny Singley. Hi, Danny. How are you doing? Hey, Cassidy. Good. Doing well. Good to be here. So we are going to talk about dads today. I first want to share a little bit of context of how I first came to know you. Mm -hmm. So I had just joined the board of the Postpartum Health Alliance. It was my first board meeting, and I was also a little, I was pretty new in the field as well, and so I was a little nervous. First board meeting, I'm still a newbie, and we're going around talking about what are our plans for the year, and I sort of shyly raised my hand. I'm like, I wonder if we can talk about dads, you know? Like, nice. Can we talk about dads, too? And everybody's, all their eyes lit up. They're like, yes, we've been wanting to do that, and you need to know Danny. Mm-hmm. And so quickly got connected with you, and you've become probably my number one resource for dads in San Diego. So we've, you know, we've shared clients with each other, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we've collaborated, and I'm just really happy to know you and to get a chance to sit down with you and talk about dads a little bit more today. I have to say it warms my heart that in your very first PHA <laughs> meeting, you were like, dads. What about the dads? <laughs> what about the dads? I love it. Yeah. So let's jump right in. What are the messages that dads are receiving out there in the world that are making it hard, that are making dads finding it hard to find their footing in the dad role or why are dads struggling? What are some of those messages? So, so my, my big area of focus is early fatherhood and the, the big stereotype that I see out there and that I, and that I talk with, with dads about is the so-called bumbling dad mm. stereotype. And you see it with, you know, Peter Griffin on the family guy or Homer Simpson or Al Bundy or, you know, any of these, but in particular, as it relates to the fathering of, infants and newborns it's he doesn't know what he's doing uh you know he puts the diaper on the baby's head and screws it up and ends great, up handing great back. comic relief yeah not a great strong model yeah. for how to father funny stuff I, yeah. I like a good laugh more than yeah. anybody in particular about dads but yeah i would say that's that's the that's the top sort of stereotype out there it's getting better you see more you know dadvertising out there that shows 
dads are doing it really well, like big NFL types and tutus hanging out with their daughters and having <laughs> yeah. tea, but not so much with the babies, not so much with the infants and the babies. So, Yeah. And would you say that some of the modern changes and maybe expectations are putting dad here in a tough position, right? So not a lot of strong models potentially for how to, how to do fatherhood, but there's also an, a greater expectation. Have you found that a greater expectation for dads to be involved in a different way than maybe their own fathers were? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know you're doing this for the benefit of your listeners. You know my rap on this <laughs> one, but yeah, absolutely. I think of it as the, yeah. as the fatherhood generation gap. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's one of the ways in which I see masculinities and the expectations of men shifting slowly but consistently in an ongoing way, mm-hmm. in many ways as an extension of the women's liberation and the post-feminist and post-feminist movements. And so men are having sort of an equal and opposite reaction. But, but what I see is that nowhere is that change happening more visibly and more readily than in fatherhood. Mm-hmm. And as that as that change happens... You've got new dads that are expected to be much, much more involved than stereotypically their own dads would have been, although exceptions to every rule and all that. Right. Um, but I, I work with a lot of dads and couples where he wants to be right in there and be super involved. But like we were saying earlier, the models aren't there, both in terms of his own family of origin, but then also more broadly, how, do, how does he do it? Right. And, and what my experience has been both personally but also clinically, is that there's there's also the messages there of well let me I'll give a personal example. When I was pregnant with our first child, you know, after um, during pregnancy there were a lot of messages that my husband got of like, okay, you're gonna be getting up in the middle of the night, like you gotta like step it up. Yeah. You, you, like, you're your host. You are going to be involved, you know? Right, and yeah. he's like, okay, okay, I can do this, right? And then after our daughter was born. I was pleasantly surprised to see how often I was being screened for depression and anxiety and, and a check-in, right? Great. Of, of how I was doing. And and thank goodness, right? Because that should be happening. Mm-hmm. But then I would find that providers would turn to my husband and look at him and say, And are you are you getting up in the middle of the night? Are you stepping up? Right? And 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 I and I see in that the, the point there is they want to make sure that I that he's you know supporting me, mm-hmm. but there wasn't a check in of him. Right. How are you actually doing? Because you also just went through this huge identity shift in transition, but there was no check in around his mental health, and there's a message in that, right? The message is. Be strong. Be strong. Yeah. Be, yeah. be a man for others. Be a man for others. Man, mm-hmm. man up. Mm-hmm. Um, don't talk about your feelings, mm-hmm. even if they're there. <laughs> and so how, how, let's talk a little bit about when, when dads are struggling. What have you seen as being some of the risk factors and protective factors? How common is it for men to actually experience depression mm-hmm. postpartum do we call it postpartum depression so i'm throwing a lot of questions mm-hmm. at you but mm-hmm. I, know, I know you can handle it sure <laughs> well in, in terms of risk factors um well just to back up so i'm preaching at the choir here with you so this is more <laughs> this is more for the benefit of your listeners yeah. the, the umbrella term is, postpartum depression is what gets the most play in the media but we we in the, in the biz talk about pmats perinatal mood and anxiety disorders 
is what we're actually, you know, as the umbrella term. And within that, you've got largely depression, anxiety, you know, you've got other, you know, thought disorders like psychosis as well. Um, but I think it's important to start talking, looking at pregnancy and postpartum as well. And when you ask about risk and protective factors, so zeroing in specifically on postpartum depression, the the number one risk factor for dads to develop postpartum depression is mom's postpartum depression. So now you got two parents who are struggling. Exactly. Maybe in different ways. Mm -hmm. It may, it may show up in different ways, but they're struggling very often in in different ways. And this goes back to that sort of how men are told to protect and provide and not necessarily, you know, look inward, you know, be the sturdy Oak and all that. Um, of course, a history of previous mood or anxiety disorders in the dad is a, is an important risk factor to take a look at. Um, trauma, uh, potentially sexual trauma or issues in the family of origin that, that as, so you, you talk, you know, your motherhood role and my father role as, as people make the role transition to parenthood, a lot of times that will in ways that might be a little off radar subconscious cycle us back into mm-hmm. our experience in our family of origin. And yeah. so that can also now conversely, having a solid father or father figure or that sort of experience can reflect a, a, a real protective factor. Right. The number one real protective factor against paternal um, uh, perinatal mood and anxiety issue tends to be the relationship with his partner. Mm. So almost all of the scholarly academic literature in the area looks at this relationship among um, mental health issues, the father's involvement with his infant, and then his relationship with his partner. So you were involved in this Delphi study that I did when I was getting my PhD, where we were looking at, you know, bringing together all the experts around the world, really. It was an international study. It was a very cool study. It was very cool. Mm -hmm. So fun to to be doing that and bringing together experts from around the world to explore what are we, what are we, what are we naming this? What are we calling it? What are the risk factors, protective factors? And along with an alignment with what you just said, one of the biggest protective factors was support system mm-hmm. related to related to the father's own father, related to the partner, related to does he have other dads yeah, he can buddies. talk to? Does he have friends he can talk to? And so I have found in my clinical practice that when I am working with a couple who is expecting or hoping to expect that, you know, we, we jump right in there and looking at like, how is the partner relationship? Like, how are you guys talking about the roles? How are you guys going to talk about the fact that this is going to be a big shift in many ways around identity and intimacy? Um, so research definitely points to that being one of the biggest protective factors is the people who are around dad and that, that support network. Okay, so check this out. This is while we're nerding out on research as it applies to dads. I love nerding out on research. It's my jam. (laughs) So my my team, so I have this ongoing program of research, and our focus is paternal involvement with infants. Mm. So what are the different kinds of involvement that fathers have with their infants? We Mm. developed a scale for that, and we just finished a study. We actually just submitted it for review. What are the predictors of dads being involved with their, with their infants? And one of the really interesting findings that we found as it relates to support is the, the more family support that, that the dad had available to him, the less involved he was with his infant on a couple of key indicators of paternal involvement. Mm. And so my team and I were looking at this going, what do you make of that? And one of the things that we that we 
were able to find some precedent in the literature was this idea of we, we talk about maternal gatekeeping and that goes back you know 1999 2000 well this whole idea was extended family gatekeeping mm. so the and case so, and so what you mean by gatekeeping for anyone listening is this this idea of like this is how okay you can you can be involved but this is how you need to be involved this my way you, my way right this is how it needs to be done and that then takes away potentially a father's agency but also doing the things that we all had to do to develop. And when I say we, I mean I'm myself as a mom, mm-hmm. but I had to do to learn what, what works, right? Through trial and error, through um, learning what, feel, what, what feels right for me as a mother and as a parent. And so in gatekeeping, you're sort of, step, you're standing in the way of a father being able to develop his own unique relationship with his child and figuring out how he wants to do it and getting the confidence to stay involved so it's interesting to see how sure having extended family can be a real source of support but can also get in the way of that direct involvement right so the quality of the support yeah what the support looks like kind of support matters yeah the kind of support matters so how many dads are being impacted by this i mean are we talking just a couple out there (laughs) struggling fathers or are a lot of dads being impacted by so prevalence-wise, um, the, the the big figure thrown around for depression is one in ten yeah. dads experience postpartum depression. Uh, a couple of, of good studies, one was a, a solid meta-analysis done a couple of years ago, shows anxiety, prevalence for anxiety spectrum disorders, you know, generalized anxiety, OCD, and so on, at about it's between four and sixteen percent during pregnancy, and then about four to eighteen percent or so postpartum mm-hmm. in the first year or so postpartum. Mm-hmm. And so, back to what we were talking about earlier, postpartum depression gets a lot of the headlines, but there's so much anxiety out there, and just the word anxiety, you know. So my practice is all men. I work with all men, and you know, some couples. But when you start talking about, you could, guys can have stress. Right, you can have stress, or I can have anger, or like this. Ooh, I can't have anxiety, but experiencing anxiety is so common. It's I would say it's it's potentially even more prevalent than than depression, and oftentimes it goes together with it. Oh, depression and anxiety love to hold hands exactly with each other, and I would say my own clinical practice as well. I see I see more anxiety. I think mm-hmm. I mean depression. No, is me there, too. Me too. Right, but the anxiety is so prevalent. So you talked a little bit about this like languaging piece, right? Like I can be, okay, I'm stressed or I can be angry or I can be irritable, but I don't have anxiety. Right. I'm not sad. Of course not. So can we talk a little bit though about this piece of how, how does depression and anxiety potentially look different in men than it would in women or moms? Of course, and I'm saying this knowing that, like, that's not always, it's not always going to be the case. Whatever your answer is, like, there's right. such a diversity of experiences here and how it shows up. But what have you seen in terms of what symptoms tend to look like for anxiety, depression in dads? Is it different from moms? Yeah, yeah. So, so interestingly, there's a, there's a 2005 American psychologist the, where they looked at the gender equality or, or gender mm-hmm. similarities hypothesis. And the short version is, Psychosocially, men and women are about seventy percent the same. Yeah. So yeah, yeah uh, but this the 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 term is a major depressive disorder, male type, or so called uh, male masked mm. depression are the ways that it's cited in the literature. And 
And the short version is that, yeah, a lot of times, some women, but a lot of times men will commonly manifest depression instead of, you know, being weepy, weepy, feeling hopeless or being vegetative or, you know, not getting up, uh, getting out of bed will look really irritable, angry, frustrated, um, and will uh, tend to overuse or, or show an increase in substance use, drinking, drugs, street, prescription, otherwise, um, an increased tendency to, to somaticize or have bodily complaints, you know, mm-hmm. headaches, muscle tension, you know, you can't, you can't be depressed, you can't be anxious, but you know, it's okay to have muscle tension. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might see these dads showing up in their doctor's offices complaining of headaches or stomach aches mm-hmm. or, um, like you were saying, muscle tension. Okay. And you hope the MD knows how to make a good referral. You hope. <laughs> and, yeah. and they're out there. They are. But there's... There's still room there for, yeah. for growth. Well, and, and then the final uh, uh, big symptom of male-type depression is isolation. Mm-hmm. And this is a really, really important one. And it gets to that, that scenario that you laid out earlier with, you know, the person turning to your husband and saying, well, yeah. I hope you're getting up in the middle of the night. And the point is, you can be very isolated and withdrawn when you're around people all the time, mm-hmm. at work or at home or out in your community doing things. It's more of a question of, are you hiding in, in plain sight? Mm-hmm. And when people get depressed, they feel badly about themselves and they don't want to be seen. And men in particular will do this weird combo of trying to overachieve or get out there and do things while also just stuffing mm-hmm. their concerns and, and, and who they really are. And yeah. it's very difficult. Yeah. There's, you know, some some people I've talked to when I've when I've used the works, I, I, I love talking about postpartum men um, and, you know, mood and anxiety disorders that they can be experiencing because I want to spread the word. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I'll get faced with this question of, come on, really? Like, oh, you know, go go to my Facebook page. There's a lively one (laughs) on this. Is there a lively one on this? Come on. Like, you know, yes, women, we can understand their bodies change during pregnancy. There's like that, like physiologically, they're being put at risk. So, and, and that would be like the big thing. I'm like, let's, we can't call it that. There's nothing like about, there's nothing physiologically putting them at risk. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Like are, are men, well, one, are men changing? Like do, there, do they physiologically change? Do we know anything about that during pregnancy? Uh, and then can we sort of like break these, these ideas that like there's nothing happening during this period of time that would put men at risk? Like what are the things that are putting them at risk? So briefly, yes, men around the the birth of their children do experience hormonal changes that basically mirror the direction of hormonal changes that that their partners do, that the moms do. So drop in testosterone, increase in estradiol, increase in oxytocin, vasopressin like this. There are about uh, probably about four or five fairly well done studies along these lines. It's just not as big of a shift. The magnitude of the right. of the shift in the hormones is less in, in considerably less than it is in dads and it is in mom. But it's there. But it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's other things happening. So like let's so let's throw that into the pot, right? Like that that is something that is happening. But when I to these people who come to me, and they're like, come on, and I look at them and I say. Okay, so you're telling me that, well, one, we actually do know that physiologically there are things going on that are potentially putting dads at risk, but they're also, their identities just changed, mm-hmm. right? Let's talk about that risk factor, like a big shift in identity. 
intimacy has potentially changed, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Majorly. Big and time. so Big time. and so now you're looking at partner relationship and how they used to connect with their partner and, and who they used to the time they used to have to connect with their partner is potentially not there. Absorbed. Uh, yeah. Sleep. Like if mm-hmm. I mean if they are getting you know, they're even if they're not getting up in the middle of the night, they're potentially having disturbed sleep and they probably are getting up, right? And mm-hmm. so you now you have somebody who's had just had a huge shift in identity, not getting enough sleep, right? And one of their most primary important relationships has shifted mm-hmm. during this period of life. And you're gonna tell like you know, I'm like, and you're gonna tell me that's not that's not a put, thing. That's not a thing right. that will put anybody at risk for for struggling, right? With depression or anxiety. So I'm actually doing a talk at the at the Postpartum Support International Conference this coming uh, this summer with my buddy David Levine, who's a family who's a family practice doc on the East Coast, and he has had postpartum depression and anxiety twice. Wow! And um, the talk we're doing is basically about dispelling myths about about paternal PMADs, and this is one of them the, mm-hmm. that there's no there there when in fact there's plenty of. There, there. One in ten is a really big public mental health number. Yeah. And one of the biggest myths is hormones don't change, and so it can't be, you know, postpartum. Uh, your body doesn't change, and so you can't. It can't be a PMAD or postpartum or like this. But for all the factors that you just laid out, the change in the relationship, the change in the routine, the family logistics, like all of those add up to factors which can really result in having serious mood anxiety difficulties so but but to your point actually a lot of times when i'll do a talk on this i will i will just kind of start the thing off and say okay okay singly's up on the stage and he's gonna go on nattering on about you know dads and pmads raise your hand if you don't think this is a thing uh-huh. And there's kind of like nervous muttering and I'm like, ha ha ha, seriously, I'm not going to yeah. call you out. Like, yeah. just raise your hand if you don't think that this is a thing. And periodically people will. Yeah. And, yeah. and I hear that a lot. It's yeah. out there. It absolutely is out there. Okay. So there's this, we've, we, I feel like we've touched on this a little bit around, um, you know, we don't talk about emotions or I don't, or if I even was to talk about emotions, I wouldn't know how to talk about emotions. What, what I found in the research study that I did is that one of the protective factors was high level of emotional intelligence. How do men develop emotional intelligence or how do they develop emotionally to be able to create language to describe what it is that they're feeling? So there, this is a, a very much a societal phenomenon. It's, you know, it starts at, even at home in the gendering and on the playground. You know, boys, boys are shamed in many ways, for expressing emotions other than mad. And um, we can sometimes unintentionally reify that for them. I would say that the opposite of emotional intelligence is alexithymia. Mm -hmm. And so in the literature, the the term normative male alexithymia gets at the, 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 the male manifestation, although women will experience alexithymia as well. So alexithymia, A without lexi, words, thymia, feelings. And so it refers to the phenomenon in which a person, in this case we're talking about dads or men, don't have the words to name what they're feeling. But sometimes it's even more profound than that, and it's they're just not in touch with their their internal emotional 
uh, world. And so, of course, it makes it very difficult for them to be in touch with other people's emotional world. And that gets us back to the whole relationship thing, which makes, you know, the empathizing back and forth very hard. So I do quite a lot of work with men and dads that begins with kind of assessing to what extent do they do they get the whole feelings thing it's funny because then i run into the the age-old thing of oh the shrink in the room thinks it's all about feelings i start sounding like Stuart smalley and like this but the reality is that tends to be a a necessary but not even necessary sufficient step to take in order to do real lasting significant work on on managing their own mood issues you can't manage your mood if you don't know what it's called if you can't name it if you can't name it then Mm -hmm. you can't begin to contextualize it understand it right and then know what to do with it when you are when you're finding yourself in that space with it and you're very unlikely to be able to have productive conflict with your partner or somebody else that's really important to you if you can't pair the words that are being said or the behaviors you're being done with a better understanding of really emotionally what's going on it's it's easy to look at people and see that person looks mad right Right. you can see somebody and they look mad But you don't usually intuit that underneath that anger tends to be anger, sadness, rejection, fear, lonely, helpless, hopeless. Oh, yeah. Anger is so often a secondary emotion. I mean, I've seen it be a primary emotion when, like, we feel like our rights have been violated, right? Right. But otherwise, there is, like, anger is the tip of the iceberg, and underneath that is some so many other emotions, potentially very vulnerable emotions, those vulnerable emotions potentially being the ones that are harder. Those are the ones they beat out of us on the playground. Yeah. Those are the ones. Not okay. Out of you on the playground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you are, can you just give a, a little peek into when you are working with a dad and you are building emotional vocabulary, what does that, what does that look like? Are I you, literally give him a handout. You literally give him a handout. I literally give them a handout. Yeah. Yeah. If that, if that, yeah. if that's related and that's part of the work that, right. that we're going to do, if it seems like they have difficulty I'll give them a handout and it's got a bunch of different feeling words on it and we'll literally give them homework to, depending on what the context of the work that they're doing is, we'll, it will involve either saying to themselves or potentially down the road or if they do relationship stuff, emotional mirroring of what they see the other person experiencing. Mm-hmm. This is particularly important for dads, as a matter of fact. Some of the some interesting work uh, done probably about 10, 15 years ago looked at, at the relationship between having... An, an involved father in the first two, three years of, of childhood. And this particular study I'm thinking about was involved in which the father would use emotion words with his, with his infant. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, if you think about what he's doing is one, this is attunement. Like that is actively trying to name what's going on inside of his kid, express that that it's important to him. He may or not be right about it, but one, he's being attuned, but two, he is modeling saying your feelings, which we're a couple of shrinks and we think that that's awesome. But there's plenty of research that shows that the ability to do that means you can avoid having to talk to us. Mm-hmm. You can do that with, with other people throughout your life. Yeah. And three, the, the, the kid actually has that, has that sense of this is okay to do. Dad's doing it. Mm. So it's not just, hey, how can I use feeling words with my partner? I do this with dads all the time. A lot of them, have, they, they think I'm supposed to teach them how to, you know, throw a ball and be tough and start a savings account and think, do all that stuff too. But this is the other side of the coin. Yeah. 
Uh, my, I have a three-year-old son, and so everything you're, you're saying is feels very relevant. You know, raising raising a young a little boy, and my husband and I will will talk about okay, you know, when he is when he does have big feelings, how can we sort of help him, support him in naming these feelings? And so we've done we've done a lot of this work with him, um, you know, in in parenting with him. And the other day, he was really upset, and he was crying. And a family member, you know, saw him upset and wanted to make it better by offering some like distraction techniques, like, oh, look at this, look at this. And he turns to this family and he says, no, but I'm sad and I'm feeling sad and I need you to hug me. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it was like this moment as a mother and a therapist, but like as a mother, yeah, yeah. I'm just like, yes, like own it buddy you are sad that is your feeling and what you need there is connection uh. <laughs> i love so flash forward my 13 year old yeah. just recently did this move where he got you know he's in he's you know blooming and puberty and all that and probably just the kind of kid that he is he's he's okay with me saying this he got really upset about something and and you know all upset and he was like Dad, I'm sorry. I'm just hormonal and pubescent, but it's okay. I love you. And I was like, that's the best thing I've ever heard. Uh, I love it. And coming from a 13-year-old boy, oh, too. Excuse yeah. me, young man. Young man. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, so for any stakeholders who are listening, and what I mean by stakeholders, I mean dads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean moms. I mean partners, right? I mean family members, and I mean providers. So therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, physicians, nurses, lactation consultants, doulas, all of them. Anybody who would be considered a stakeholder in paternal mental health, what can what can we be doing? Like what needs to be done at like a larger scale in order to make it easier for dads to get the support that they need? Okay, big question. So the the two ways that I would answer that are one, express a clear and consistent expectation that dads are involved at every step of the game. Dads should be part of the conversation. At every step of the game. What, you know, pregnancy visits, well baby visits, whenever it, you know, dads get to invade mommy and mommy and me yoga, the, the whole thing. Um and the second is to build better boys, Mm. to set up our societal institutions so that we don't beat and guilt and shame the connection, the drive to connect and the, the, the drive to be emotional and to express emotions and to to have that be okay with, with boys. Mm. You don't have to, you don't have to fix the broken man if you build a better boy. Mm. Uh, So, Getting to what you were talking about earlier, you know, I imagine for some dads, it may be like, do I really need to go see a therapist? Do I really need to ask for help? Like, you know, I'm, I, I, I can just power through or white knuckle through this. I find that for a lot of men, when you start to talk about their kids' mental health and the relationship between them and their, their kids and them and their sons, that then that becomes motivating. So like using whatever it takes to motivate, to get the support and get the help. And if that is, hey, we want to build better boys and we want to build better relationships with our children, then let that be the motivator and get in for the support and the help. So what are the ways that I, 
Totally agreed. One of the ways that I message that is I, I like to meet men where they are instead of mm. shaming them for being yeah. men and guys. And one of the ways that I'll do that around this particular topic is to take the, uh, the traditional idea of the provider. You know, the protector provider role becomes super, super salient when you start getting ready to become a dad. And then initially when you become a dad, and typically we think of that as, you know, earning and keeping the lights turned on and keep the saber two tigers away and all like this. However, and there's research to support this. One of the most, once you get basic needs met, one of the most important things that a dad can provide to his even, even infant or baby is himself his involvement and the very best version of himself is what I talk to these dads about. That's what your kid, that's what your family, that's what your partner, that's what everybody, including yourself deserves. Yeah. So if you're doing a whole lot of stuffing it or quote unquote, letting it roll off your back, which doesn't mean it's rolling off your back. It means stuffing it. Then you can do the best by everybody involved by not letting the wheels come off the car and committing to doing whatever it takes to providing the best version of yourself mm. to your kid. And that doesn't have to be talking to a shrink. It doesn't have to be talking to one of us. It can be talking to a friend, talking to a father, talking to a father figure, talking to a clergy member. doesn't matter what Talking it is. to someone. Just don't be isolated. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Danny, so much. What are some of your favorite resources? If we could oh. end with that. And then where can people find you? Okay. Okay, so um, my website is uh, www.menexcel.com, so you can go there. Um, I actually just, I mean, two weeks ago, launched the very first social networking site just for dads. So I've been working with a a, a top-notch web developer, that would be my wife, (laughs) and we we just launched, we're in beta version of, it's called Padre Cadre. Oh, so if you, if you go to www.padrecadre.com, it is the first social networking site that's only for dads. And the whole plan is you log in, you set up a membership, you can message other dads. Uh, we've got forums with information in it. But the key thing about this that's different than pretty much all other social media sites is we've got a geolocation function where you can find other dads in your area. And the whole plan is get you out of the application, get you in there, right. find other, because right. I get calls all the time. Hey, is there a dad's play group? Where do I find other? It's, it's easy to find mom, early mom groups, yeah. not with dad groups. And so yeah. PadreCadre.com is set up to do that. So of course there's my site. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't know that you were doing that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. See, I'm stealthing this stuff. Yeah, you are paying attention. <laughs> so there's, there's, that's, uh, that's my site, obviously. Yeah. Um, another really good one is Life of Dad. Mm. So Art over at lifeofdad.com. He's totally awesome and have a ton of resources, including some, some local ones. Um, I would also say to check out uh, Dadit. So the father-focused chunk of, of Reddit, that tends to be a pretty active community. I've got some videos on my uh, Center for Men's Excellence site, I think, including one with you. Yeah, we did. Where, we, did we did an interview a few years ago. Well, that's yeah. parked there. So if you <laughs> yeah. want more on postpartum depression in men, go there. Awesome. Oh, yes. One last thing. Yeah. So um, as you know, I work with Postpartum Support International, and we absolutely take a whole family approach to including dads. It's not just about moms. And one of the things that PSI does is we are – 
hosting and co-sponsoring the third International Father's Mental Health Day, which will be the Monday after Father's Day this year. So on Twitter, check us out on Facebook. It's uh, International Father's Mental Health Day, hashtag DadsMHDay. Check us out. We're going to do a variety of, uh, we'll do a Twitter chat and probably a Facebook live thing and all that. So awesome. we got Mother's Day this, this month, yep. Father's Day coming up. Thank you, Danny, so much for all the great work you're doing with dads. Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. (laughs) Thanks, Danny. Hey, guys, it's me. I'm back. First, I wanted to say I'm sorry that the audio in the episode is not the greatest. It sounds like the fan that was on in the room that we were recording in was being picked up by the mic, and we did not pick up on that while we were recording. But I also wanted to jump back on and share a little bit more about some of the research that was mentioned in this episode. So as Danny and I mentioned a couple of years ago, about three years ago now, I conducted an international Delphi study on paternal peripartum depression. What that means is that I pulled together experts from all over the world into this study to have a conversation and come up with some consensus around this issue. So we looked at things like risk factors, protective factors, what do symptoms look like, and a few other things. So usually these types of studies, in this case, it was in the Journal of Affective Disorders. These types of studies find their way into a hopefully peer-reviewed journal. And the hope is, is that other researchers can find this study and build upon it. But the problem I see with all this is that then all this great understanding that we've discovered in the research stays in a journal and eventually it trickles down to the real stakeholders, families who are being impacted by this issue and providers who are interacting with these families day to day, but it takes a while for it to trickle down. So I thought I would jump in and share a little bit more about the research and what we found. So let's first talk about risk factors. So a lot of the ones that Danny mentioned showed up in this research. So things such as having a history of a mood and or anxiety disorder, having a previous episode during and or after a previous pregnancy, um, experiencing any losses or grief. So birth trauma can also be a huge risk factor. Biological risk factors, so a dad that maybe has a genetic predisposition for depression. One of the risk factors we found here was prolonged sleep sleep deprivation or interrupted sleep, which, hello, is for sure happening if you just had a newborn baby. Having a poor social support network. The number one that showed up here that also Danny mentioned was a mother or partner who experienced symptoms of depression as well. A few other risk factors that we found would be having unexpected experiences, such as having a child and a baby with special needs. Um, If the baby has any health difficulties, that can also be a risk factor. If there was any impaired bonding between father and infant, um, maybe a baby was born early and had to spend a lot of time in the NICU, and so there wasn't a lot of opportunities for father and baby to connect and bond. The NICU nurses are so wonderful and do so much that they can to try to build that support and that bond and attachment early on with a lot of skin-to-skin time when it's possible. And so the, the nurses are really trying hard, but sometimes it's just hard to get that attachment and bonding time when a baby is in NICU. Um, if there's any marital conflict, so marital conflict would actually also be a risk factor. 
Um, also, we're looking at any unresolved conflicts during life related to attachment issues. So Danny touched on this as well. If there's any family of origin or attachment issues that the father himself has experienced, becoming a dad can re-trigger some of these things. Um, also, father's own assessment of fatherhood or potentially having any unrealistic expectations. First-time fathers are also more at risk. Okay, so these are some of the risk factors, but what are protective factors? So a father who is proactively utilizing positive community and social support, that is a huge protective factor. Danny spoke to that as well. Having a strong relationship with mom or a partner. Having healthcare professionals who have a greater understanding of paternal depression during this period and how it affects the whole family. So if you are a provider listening, you are a huge protective factor in how you interact with dad, how you assess, do you assess, and how you interact with the whole family and providing that whole family care. Dad's being included in bonding and nurturing experiences. So Danny spoke to this a little bit in terms of um, gatekeeping. So is partner and is the family and extended family really giving dad a chance to jump in and bond with baby and engage in those nurturing and bonding experiences? So also positive family history with modeling of partner bonding and mutual support and communication. So having really strong parental role models as well. Having worked through any unresolved conflicts and attachment issues. So if a dad is expecting, if his partner is expecting, and you're having a baby soon, and you know that there's just some of those lingering issues there, being really proactive and talking about these things with the right people can be a huge protective factor. Having open communication between father and his partner, as well as social supports with opportunities to talk openly about feelings and worries. And what this might mean is having a high degree of emotional intelligence. Danny spoke to this. So what this means is having a language for how to talk about your emotions. And that can be developed in therapy. That can be developed literally potentially just by Googling a big list of emotions and beginning to get practice with naming those emotions. Having an employer who really supports whole family leave. And so a dad potentially getting paid paternity leave. I know it doesn't happen quite often. It should happen more. And hopefully as this issue gets more attention, then employers will begin to follow suit and take care of dads as well. Regular exercise, having prepared for the parental role. So there's a ton of really great classes out there. Danny's website is a great resource for finding out about classes specific to dads. Meaning systems, so whether that's cultural, spiritual, meaning systems can also be a huge protective factor for many dads, according to the experts in this study. So what do symptoms look like? According to the experts, the symptoms that they identified as being the most prevalent of what they see in their practices or in their work or in their research was low mood, sense of hopelessness, feeling helpless, fatigue, feelings of being inadequate, feeling frightened, changes in appetite and weight, loss of interest in work, hobbies, lack of exercise and regular leisure or recreational activities, even when the time is available, feeling overwhelmed, 
having intense worries or anxiety or negative thoughts, feelings of irritability, frustration, and anger, problems with concentration, lack of motivation, indecisiveness, confusion in the fathering role, concerns about their own ability to father, decreased engagement in caregiving activities, um, other escapist behaviors such as excessive time spent watching TV or on the internet or overworking. It can also lead to some suicidal thoughts, uh, which needs to get immediate attention. Experiencing conflict between how you think you should be as a man and how you actually feel like you are. Feeling trapped, feeling guilt, and feelings of shame. Guilt and shame are different in the sense that guilt is this feeling of I've done something bad and shame is that there is something wrong with who I am. And also grief can be a symptom. Grief at the loss of their old life and relationship with partner. So a lot of these things Danny and I covered in the podcast, but I just kind of wanted to summarize it all from some of the research that I did a couple years ago in this Delphi study. I hope you have found this episode to be useful. I'm going to put all the links of the resources plus a few others in the podcast notes that Danny mentioned. And so if you are a father or know a father or are a provider who works with fathers that are struggling, I hope that these resources and this episode have been useful for you. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful day. You've been listening to Holding Space Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the information that was shared in this episode. If you did, you might want to subscribe and be the first to hear about future episodes as soon as they air. Thank you so much for sharing this space with me. Have a great day.